Real quick, guys, your attention. Uh, there's going to be a lot in this. I mean, this seminar is an hour and a half, so there's going to be a ton of information. The goal is not to just learn a whole lot of stuff as much as it is to figure out what is it in this time of your life you need to put into practice in your own life. So I want to give you that at the beginning here. I also uh, will remind you at the end. At the end, I'm going to want you to go back, look, review it, circle the thing that you really need to begin to put into practice so that you can get financially healthy. Um, and, you know, so just know that. I'm going to present a lot of information to you, and it's going to be overwhelming, but the goal is not to leave here with a ton more information as much as it is to have one or two steps, practical things, that can really uh, help you in terms of your financial health. Okay? So, good? Yes? Great? Wonderful? Are we good on You guys ready to roll? Everyone got a packet that wants one? Do you have something you can write on? Or good? Because I don't think we have a Okay. Okay. All right, great. Um, let's see. I'm going to try to put my timer on here so that I have an ability to pay attention to it. Okay. Yes, here we go. I love talking about money. Oh my gosh, I could do financial seminars every day, I think, uh, and be completely satisfied. Uh, money is fun, 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 fun. Now, I will tell you that I have not always been good with money. In fact, I still am not necessarily great with it. Um, you know, it's something I've had to learn. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my past. Thankfully, I had uh, parents, I really want to say one parent in particular, who was really good at finances, and she helped me a lot uh, in terms of understanding uh, a lot about, uh, I'm always dogging my dad, man. I just feel bad. I just, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, it helped me a lot in terms of just really being smart with my finances. And so uh, I really appreciate that uh, from her. And I've, this has just been an ongoing thing that I've kind of become more and more interested in over the last few years, and so hopefully I can kind of share with you from the perspective of uh, what not to do, what to do, and both of those, not that I'm a complete financial mastermind uh, that's going to make you millions of dollars. I'm not going to teach you how to get rich quick, like Chelsea advertised, so I apologize. This is not a timeshare type kind of environment here, we're, we're an investment opportunity. Um, okay, so... Foundational biblical truths, that's where we're going to start. There's no way to talk about this topic uh, without engaging the biblical testimony on it. The Bible has a lot to say about uh, finances, uh, a lot more to say than a lot of other topics. And as Americans, we have done an amazing job of ignoring most of the biblical commands on money. I mean, we are really good at it. None of us are greedy. Uh, None of us have any financial problems. We just have done a really good job of paying no attention to the biblical commands on uh, money. So the goal for this talk is for us to kind of come into contact with a few more of those and hopefully be challenged by them. So we'll start with foundational biblical truths. I'll move on to guidance that I think requires wisdom. The Bible has some weird sayings about money. Uh, that we'll try to kind of engage and try to figure out what's going on. And then we'll get into the practicals. We'll talk about budgeting. Everyone loves budgeting. Yeah. Woohoo. Okay. Uh, and uh, then we'll talk about developing a generous heart and generosity. And then we'll go through to talk about credit and debt and insurance. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, pretty exciting stuff, right? I'm going to do my best job of trying to present this in engaging and uh, interesting ways. Although some people really glaze over when you start talking about numbers. Uh, so, whatever. We'll do what we got to do. Okay, first blank there. Your ultimate worth does not come from what you contribute Your ultimate worth does not come from what you contribute, but who you were created to be. It was very easy in our very practical society, in our society that measures people based on efficiency, to think of our value 
and our worth coming from what we contribute, what we do, what we accomplish, what we achieve. And yet the Bible rails against this idea of human achievement as being a sign of us being valuable. Uh, from the Tower of Babel all the way to you know Jesus countering the religious establishment. Uh, we are not worthy because of the things that we contribute. We are simply worthy because we were created by God and He has given us the gift of achieving and, wor- and working towards stuff as a result of who He is and how good He is. But we do not find our value and our worth in those things. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis 1, uh, 27 and uh, try to make sense of it. So, money and possessions are useful if seen as a temporary gift from God and a tool to bless people but never as a means to finding self-worth or self-respect. And that's Luke 16, 1 through uh, 15. Guys, we spend too much of our time trying to find our value for things that we can easily measure. All right? Whether that's how much money I make, okay? Whether that's how many friends I have on Facebook. I don't think anyone does that anymore, but whatever. Um, how busy I am, my schedule's packed full of stuff. Look how busy I am, look how worthy and you know worthwhile I am. Nobody is not busy anymore, it doesn't seem. Um, we love that. How much stuff we can uh, you know, collect. What are some other easy measurements that we use for self-worth? Status. The type of job we get, like the, yep. what our job title is. Yeah, what we're contributing to society, status type thing, absolutely. What else? Oh, yeah, beautiful, right? You know, how hard my degree is, you know, versus yours. Yeah, whatever. What else? Who you know. Okay, yeah, who you know. That's a tough one for you. I mean, because you, like, know everyone, right? So that's, that's like a confession type thing right there. Sorry. Anything else? Okay, Luke 16, 1 through 15, Jesus at the end says something incredibly important to us. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. What we look at and think, man, that is super cool, super valuable, God detests. That's a strong statement. And so I think as Christians, we've got to really avoid finding our self-worth in the things that we can easily measure. What we've contributed, what we've done, how many people you're studying with, how many people are in your small group, how many people we have in our church. Uh, Those are all easy measurements of self-worth. Things that I think in God's sight are absolutely detestable detestable okay so we've got to be really careful there your ultimate security does not come from what you have okay so your ultimate security does not come from what you have but from trusting your creator and what he gives you okay spend a lot of time thinking of money as a source of security and it can be i mean money can be uh helpful in securing not worrying from paycheck to paycheck. I spent most of my 20s going from paycheck to paycheck, having no money, no savings, lots of debt. Uh, and some of that was because I was a minister. And for those of you who choose to go into ministry, most of you just know ahead of time. It's not exactly a lucrative field, okay? And so most of my 20s, I really didn't have any money. And then I had the bright idea, well, I should probably get married. Then I'll have some money. <laughs> so I got married to someone who works full time, and all of a sudden the money came rolling in. So, just kidding. Um, It really wasn't, though, until the last few years where I started working more and getting smart about how much I was working and then using my money wisely that I really began feeling like I had any money. 
So I, it took me until my 30s to really be like, okay, I actually have some disposable income. Now, I wouldn't suggest you go through your 20s without having any money, um, but that's, you know, that's okay. It's a great source of security for me, um, but it can also bring all types of trouble, okay? All types of trouble. And I put three verse references there just to try to prove that to you. And the scripture, if it has one testimony that's clear about money, is that the pursuit of money brings all types of trouble. It's not true that the scripture says that money is the root of all evil, but it does say it's the root of all kinds of evil. And it's true. The pursuit of money has created all kinds of problems in people's lives. Using people, loneliness, false security, the list goes on and on and on. And so when we approach money, we have to be really, really careful that we watch out for the kinds of trouble that money can naturally bring us. Okay, So yes, it can be a source of security if treated correctly. But ultimately, we trust that God's going to give us uh, enough and that we're going to trust that he's going to take care of us, okay? And a lot of times it's not taking care of us through really individualistic ways. You know, I give money to him and all of a sudden I get ten times back. He's often going to use the community of God to bless us. The community of God to take care of our needs. Which is another really easily missed concept in the scripture. Jesus talks about, and we'll talk about it later, uh, the community of faith, you know, being able to pour into us. And that's one of the things that I hope as a church, uh, for those of you who are part of DNC, that we would really be known for. is a place where people can come and be in really tough financial situations and can be healed financially as a result of our ability to give to them and to teach them biblical concepts of uh, finances. And that we would truly be able to be kind of approximately like that Acts church that really shared everything in their possessions. Okay? So what kind of types of trouble can money bring? It's an easy one, right? Let's just list it off. I listed a couple from you, but what else? Trouble that money brings. Maybe this is a confession time for you. Maybe you're confessing someone else's sin. Who knows? Okay? Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, you know, easy measurements breed easy comparisons. And it's a good, you know, it's, it's naturally what we do. If someone's telling us they're busier than us, telling us that they have more than us, we immediately begin to compare ourselves. Yeah? What do you mean? Absolutely. We begin to see people as objects. People as being used and usable rather than as people. Mm-hmm. Enough is never, like, enough. Mm-hmm. Because, like, as you gain more, then you just constantly want more and feel that that's yep. not enough. Forbes did a really, really famous study uh, about five years ago where they pulled a whole bunch of millionaires. And they asked millionaires worth between about zero, what, one, and zero million, one million, and ten, that's my statistical mind, okay, one million and ten million, hey, you know, would you consider yourself rich? Less than half of those folks consider themselves rich. Think about that for a moment. Worth one to ten million dollars. Did the same thing for folks worth ten to twenty million dollars, okay? And it was only slightly over half that said, yeah, I definitely think of myself as rich, It's amazing. Now, some of you are being very judgmental to those people in your mind now. But I look up here, and I see that a lot of you expect to have a lot more money than you might be making in your life. And, you know, so maybe it's not that different. You certainly want a whole lot more money than I make, so I'm mad and jealous and envious of you. Um, Okay, what else? Types of trouble. I think that it... Oh, sorry. No, there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, we even do that on a social scale. Oh, well, 
fix our education system, just throw a whole bunch of money at it. And while certainly some of those institutions in our society need money, a lot of times you can throw money at it, it's not going to fix anything. Because it depends on how people ultimately treat that money and what they do with it. Yeah? I think of like the lottery and people's safety um, when people know that you have a lot of money. Yeah. more vulnerable. It's like I was watching a movie about that with Jesse just a couple days ago. Are you whispering about I don't know. <laughs> okay. Point three. Your ultimate peace and happiness does not come from your current circumstance. Does not come from your current circumstance. But rather from the God-given gift of contentment. So your ultimate peace and happiness does not come from your current circumstance but rather from the God-given gift of contentment. Okay, Paul knew what it was to be content, whether he had a little stuff or whether he had a lot of stuff. And I love that we read this passage because he talks about, you know, I learned the secret. And people pretend like it's still a secret. But he goes on to say, the secret is, I've learned to trust God that He'll provide for me in any and every situation. And in that context, he's not talking about random contributions that came from him. He's talking about um, a specific group of people who've chosen to give out of their poverty to him. He's just amazed by God's generosity, that he would use a whole bunch of poor people to bless him. And that's really what he's talking about in terms of commitment. But he's really learned what it is to have a lot or a little. If you think that you are going to be happy once you achieve a certain amount of success and wealth, you've gotten it wrong. Will that bring some happiness to you? Sure. But if you've not learned contentment, you'll be just as unhappy. You'll just find new ways of being unhappy. And so our peace and happiness does not come from our current circumstance, but God-given gift of contentment. Too many of you, when I ask you, okay, what time of life do you plan on being happy in, uh, happiest in, you've decided it's some future time of life. College students in particular don't believe that their current time of life is a time where they'll be very happy. A big part of that is you've determined happiness as being getting a degree, getting a job, and financial stability. And yet the irony, of course, is when you talk to older people, when do they think they were the happiest? When they were your age. So uh, something's missing there. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. Um, we have a real problem when we think that our, you know, just getting out of our current circumstance will somehow make us happy at some point. But, but contentment is a God-given gift and something that the Spirit does in our lives. First Timothy 6 uh, 46, whoa, 4, I mean. I knew I was going to do that. I'm going to read that to you because I just absolutely love it. He kind of turns this around on its head here. He's giving this instruction to his sort of minister in training. 1 Timothy 6, there in verse 4. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies, talking about false prophets, and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. And here's the part that you'll pay attention to. Who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that for a moment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, He's kind of turning this concept on its head. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the Bible has some really strong and unflinching views about our pursuit of money. And that's not to say that God wants us all to be in abject poverty. I don't think that's true. And plus, if that was true, I think all of us would be hellbound. 
um, compared to the rest of the people in the world. Yeah. What does that mean, abject? I don't really know what abject means, to be honest with you. It's just a word that you associate with poverty. Apparently, it makes poverty even worse. Oh. <laughs> Real poverty, I guess. I don't. I really don't know. That's one of those words you just sort of use in combination, but never really know. So someone look it up and be all cool, and you can show us your worth based on your knowledge of um, information. All right, Justin, go for it. <laughs> of a situation or condition. Extremely bad, unpleasant, and degrading. And some synonyms, wretched, miserable. Okay, well, we don't have to go into synonyms. <laughs> Got it. All right. Heard the point there. Okay, great. <laughs> totally forgot my train of thought now. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't think Jesus wants us to be in abject poverty. I think we make a lot of the people he spent his time with as being poor. But I don't think they were any more poor than the common person at that time was poor. Okay? Meaning they were just working class folks. Uh, so we have to be really careful about that um, in terms of thinking somehow that we ought to go all these ascetics and live in like a dungeon. What is that? That's not even a thing. A cave. And have no money and have no food. Okay? Because wealth can be a blessing. So, biblical guidance that requires wisdom. Oh my gosh. Well, there's a million of them. One of them I just said. That, that wealth can be a blessing from God. That requires a lot of distinction. Yes, sir? I know specifically I remember starting the right order. Can you verify that it started? Yeah, I did. Great. Or you did, actually. Okay. So, um, that's one of them that's not on your sheet. Just the idea that material blessing or material wealth is a blessing from God. Uh, that requires a lot of wisdom. Too many Americans have associated that with what's called the prosperity gospel and the idea that we prove our worth and spirituality by the fact that we're financially secure. And a whole lot of false preachers have sold their goods to people telling them that you know, God really wants you to be completely healthy, happy, and have a lot of money. And I'm sorry, but that really doesn't explain Jesus. And we come back to Jesus and everything that we do. Um, so that's not going to work. Okay? So that's a good one. Uh, number one, <laughs> giving is getting. Money can buy you friends. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of friends that hang around you because you have money and they can just leech off you. I'm talking about Jesus' statement to his apostles after he says, you know, to the rich man, hey, it's hard to get into heaven. Harder than a you know camel going through the eye of a needle. And they say, well, we've given up all kinds of stuff from you. So it's got to mean that we've achieved heaven. And he says, listen, you know, whatever you've given up, you won't fail to receive a hundred times in this life and the next. And he was not talking about a factor of gain and investment, okay? He wasn't talking about, you know, you'll receive this. He's talking about people. You'll receive people. When you're a generous person, when you're in the kingdom of God, you give your money up and you're part of a community, people will take care of you. I see a lot of faces in here who've been taken care of by our Benevolence Fund in the past. Um, people who've also contributed to the Benevolence Fund to take care of other people in this room. That's how it is. Uh, money really can buy your friends. And I obviously am using this statement in an exaggeratory way. It's not even a word, exaggerative way, whatever. But when you're part of the kingdom of God, we choose to use our money in ways that really uh, gain friends for us. And in fact, the scripture that I referenced there um, you can also use another scripture uh, that where Jesus talks about after the you know uh, wealthy money manager guy talks about you know hey use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. It's one of the weirdest passages I think seems like coming from Jesus, where it seems like he's um, telling that that shrewd manager did a really good job with his finances by bit let, you know uh, cutting out everyone's interest in debt. But you can go back and read that on your own. Uh, but giving is getting. You know, when you have the ability to give to people in a community, uh, it really does mean that more people can be a part of what we're doing. And it enables you to connect with them on a friendship level, to work with them. So that's really a great one. But it requires wisdom because, you know, 
we need to be really careful with making sure that we're not just giving people money to their ruin. It's why one of the things that we do as a church is really look through people's finances with them. Uh, we have we do a lot of microfinance here, which is really great, where people get a loan from us and then they pay it back. And we probably have a better default rate than just the average default rate in our society. People do pay that money back. And that's great. We want to teach them how to use money in that way. And that's really helpful. Um, Yeah. Okay. Number two. The law was created for man. Okay. And not the man for law. This is the whole idea of the Sabbath was, you know, created for man, not the man for Sabbath. Take care of the needy first. Those two ideas might seem weird to you. But for many of us, we have this law in the back of our heads that we ought to give to church or give to an organization. Okay? And we think by doing that, somehow we're discharging a duty that we have as a Christian. But if that's your idea of giving, that it's a duty, you've missed giving altogether. Because giving is ultimately a lifestyle, an attitude choice that we make about what to do with our money. Okay? And it's not a ritual or a rule. This is for our benefit. We didn't just do this so that we could get a lot of money. Jesus goes to town on the Pharisees saying that they're uh, really good at um, ignoring giving to people who need it most so they can say that they're giving to the general synagogue or church fund. Well, we do that all the time. We give money to the church, sort of without even really knowing where it goes, but then when people who are in our lives who are needy and need money want money, we don't have any money to give to them. That's a real problem. If you're giving primarily to Denton North Church without a real knowledge of where that money's going, or, or even your church, but aren't taking care of the needs that you see right around you, you've missed that law entirely. You've missed the spirit of the law, which is to give to needy people wherever they are, whether they're in your church or not in your church, whether you're enemies or not your enemies. And this is challenging. It's really, really, really challenging here. And I think we ought to, uh, to remember um, you know, Jesus' statement about that, about giving to anybody as they have need. Uh, I love this quote here that I put for you. All too often churches are structured for maintenance rather than mission and service. Some of the churches that we go to, a lot of the money that they spend, they spend on buildings or they spend on programs. That's not on people. It's not on doing mission and it's not on doing service. And so we've got to be really careful where our money's going and if we're really obeying God's command of giving to the needy around us or if we're just sort of giving to an organization and then just not worrying about it. So we can feel good about, you know, uh, having checked that off of our ritual and rules. Uh, Today is a really great time, we'll talk about this uh, in the generosity section, to give to people and to give to organizations. There's so many interns, so many people doing God's work all around uh, you know, the world that we really have an opportunity to support and give to. And that's just neat because it becomes about a relationship we have with people rather than just simply sort of giving to nowhere uh, and not knowing what that money does or where it goes. Okay? And third one, greed is an awful evil in this world, yet few see it in themselves. Greed is an awful evil. We try to tame its evil. Uh, Chelsea, can you get a door? It's sort of hot in here. Um... Yeah, if you don't mind. Um, but few see it in themselves. So I gave you some, uh, some scripture references there. And then I wrote for you, for instance, entitlement says I deserve. Well, we've just come up with a different word for greed in our society. 
that seems to almost be a positive thing. Well, I'm entitled to certain things. Entitlement, guys, is greed. The way we use the word entitlement and how it often manifests itself in our lives is greed. We want more, and so we want to rest on those things that we think we deserve. So, I want to fill in the blank here, and then I want to move on. Uh, For instance, entitlement says, I deserve what? What do you think you deserve? Which can be a really great example of, of greed. I would say parent standard of living. Those of you who expect and feel entitled to have the same level of, uh, you know, that your parents lived at, that's greedy. Who says you deserve that? Who says you, you should, should do that? Who says you've earned it? But we do. We feel like a lot of times we're going to start at or should get to the same place that our parents got to. Now, for some of you, you know, your parents didn't, you know, necessarily have a lot. So maybe your view on this is different. Um... What else? What are other examples of things we feel pretty entitled to in regard to money and finances? Um, something, it's hard to explain, but okay. like, you should get whatever your siblings get. So like your parents, mm-hmm. like you can demand whatever they're willing to give to your siblings. Sure. Kind of like a well, we can expand that to just peers. You know, we're around people and we expect, you know, people just sort of should, everybody should earn about the same. And if they don't earn the same, then, you know, somehow we should somehow... Uh, you know, mix that up as terms of equal giving. Well, it's one thing for people to be financially needy and for us to help them. It's another to expect to have the same standard of living of everybody around me. Too often, people just spend time with people from their own social class and their own money higher, you know, uh, range. But as a church, I think we've got to really be careful with that kind of thinking. Some folks are going to make more. Some folks are going to make less. And that's completely okay. Okay. And so we're not entitled to make the same amount of money as someone else around us. And some of us get really upset. We say, oh, well, my job's not as good because I get paid half as what you uh, uh, get paid. Where do you feel like you get entitled to get a certain amount of money? Um, Sure. What else? Good job. What about it? Just the mere fact that, oh, once I'm out of college, I deserve a job. Not only just a job, but an easy first job. Job I'm going to, like, love. And every moment of it's going to be amazing. Guys, a lot of folks graduating college have a really terrible first job, okay? And actually, it's not so much that their job is terrible, it's that they're terrible of understanding how, what work is really about. <laughs> now, you may genuinely have a bad job, but more times than not, at least the folks I deal with, are just terrible at thinking about vocation. We don't talk about it enough. We haven't thought about it enough from Scripture. We've been largely told, get a degree, get a great job, get money. Problem is, getting a degree is pretty much going to only help you make some more money than everyone else, uh, and maybe later on in your life, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to like your work at all. And there's a whole argument even against that, um, that you'll like it, you know, those of you who are doing professional stuff. You're going to have to learn how to love your job. You're going to learn how to, how to think about it as an extension of the church's ministry, as a part of your vocation, as one more opportunity to do ministry in the workplace. Uh, a good first car, a new car. Once you get a job, you think, oh, I should just go buy a new car off the lot. I feel entitled to that. What else? What are some other things? Yeah. Job they have a degree. Like, sure. Full time benefits job. Yeah. yeah. Without doing any like networking, internship, actually deciding to get a degree that's like valuable in the current job market. Like, sure. You just think, oh, it'll happen. Or they think that with a bachelor's degree, they can get like this awesome research job. It's like, no, you need like a, like, you need more. Yeah. Degree. Um, Sorry, I was we're going to do a seminar in April that's all about. Jobs, finding jobs, 
thinking about work as vocation, and it's for you guys. Uh, it's for those of your seniors, those of you in college, whatever. Uh, that's our goal is to do that exactly like this, do a lunch, do it after church, and it'll be about job look, every little detail about it, how to think about your job, benefits, all that stuff. And so I'll be looking uh, forward to that as well. Someone else had one? Yeah. I was just going to add on to that. I think a lot of times we feel entitled to a job in our degree field because we've gotten a degree in yep. something. More. Sure. Yeah, we, we know we're going to get that job. Without recognizing that some fields it's just a lot harder to get a job in that particular field. And there's going to be some sacrifices, some transitions. Guys, be careful about this stuff. We don't tend to think about entitlement as greed, but it is. It's saying that we're not content with what we have. We want more, more, more in order to be happy. And that is a slippery slope to the point where you might have an amazing situation and you are unable to see how great it is. And that's what often a lack of contentment does to us. People are looking at us thinking, what do you have to complain about? Are you kidding me? And you've focused on the one or two things that you possibly don't have and that's become the normative reality for you. Everything is about not having that thing, that bad aspect of your job. There's nothing that makes work more terrible and awful than doing that and focusing on those negative aspects. I've been there, I've done that, did it for six or seven years being a teacher and really hated it. And finally God stopped me upside the head and slowly began changing my mind on a lot of that stuff. I thought they were the problem, but really it was me. Okay, we're done with that. Moving on. You guys ready? So, that's out of the world of theory and how to think about some of this stuff. And we'll go into the world of practical thinking uh, and budgeting and all that good stuff. Okay, so first, uh, oh, hi. That's my little owl. And I don't know my passwords. <laughs> okay, how much income do you think you need annually for you and your family to live comfortably? Now, um, it's funny to me that many of you would say, uh, you know, somewhere on the line between these two, because it, realistically, as you get older, you're going to feel like you need more money. And uh, most of you who go to college and, you know, will have a degree, you're going to be making quite a bit more than you, you know, necessarily said you're you're wanting to make. We'll talk about the... Uh, the average in a second. But I think what's key here is what ultimately drives how much we think we need to make. Is it a real realistic as, uh, assessment of how much bills are going to be and how much you know we really think? Or is it more, mostly just sort of, well, we kind of have an impression that that's what people make or our families made that or whatever else? Um, and so one of the things we want to help you do with budgeting is actually give you some more realistic understanding of what you really need to make, what comfortable living really is. I make less than $30,000 a year, and I live really comfortably. Lived comfortably before I married Chelsea, but now I married Chelsea. Whoa, really comfortable. Because um, she makes a whopping, can I tell them how much you make? You know, $36,000 a year, you know, full-time work. Yeah, whoa. We're like, so combined, we're like really doing good, man. Like, you know, 60000 I mean, we're hitting it. But I really have no idea most days what I would do with the extra money. We make more than we even begin to know what to do with. I graduated with, our combined uh, debt was probably close to 60000 and we knocked that out within a couple years because I just don't know what people do with you know, uh, all the money that they say they have. I don't even know where it goes. The more money you have, the more you spend, I guess. But I don't want for most stuff. I'm going to have to live with Matt Clark and Ryan Plache, but still I feel pretty good about the situation I'm in. So, okay. Uh, next one. Maybe. No. What does the average American family make in income each year? So I hear you've said what you want, but what does the average American family make of 2.5 kids? I'm confused as to what you're asking. Are you asking combined income or at like a single... Yeah, combined income. Family. Everybody in your family. Cool. 
you there yes it yes it's about fifty seven thousand dollars now when you think about that for a moment that means that two people are making making roughly twenty seven thousand dollars a year or one person is making you know close to sixty thousand a year i don't think most of you expect to graduate college and make twenty seven thousand dollars a year and think okay that's really good um some of you might even be making close to that now with working part-time work i don't know probably not um i'm a little confused on you know numbers and stuff Many of you will be making quite a bit more than that if you have a degree. And you need to recognize and understand that you will be living at a higher uh, level than most Americans in our society do. And what does that mean? Um, you should think about it in terms of that. Uh, because I think a lot of times, uh, you know, we might, I don't know. Well, let me get into that a little bit later. I won't go there yet. Okay, next. I'm just going to kind of rush through these. You're the average American and made 55000 combined family income each year. About how much of that would you spend on bills? How much of that would you spend on bills? Oh, oops. Sorry, thanks. Now I'll knock it. And for those of you who are thinking 60000 is not possible, that just means you go into debt every year. Yes, it's possible. Come on, do you fight this? It's getting up there. I was one of the ones who put C in it. Okay. I think the number as of most recently is forty-eight thousand. So it bumped up a little bit from forty-five. That means you have seven thousand left uh, each year, and that's just once bills are paid. So anything in addition to what you have as basic bills, you've got less than. $500 a month, well, a little bit more than $500 a month to spend on that. That's the average and typical American family. Yeah. Can you kind of walk through bills? What do you mean? We're going to do it in a second. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that in just a, just a second. And there's a, um, you know, kind of an ongoing, I think, uh, who does it? I don't remember what organization does it. It could be Forbes, but I think it's Wall Street Journal, where they calculate consumer spending and its increase or, or decrease. So, for instance, gas has obviously gone way down from the average American family, Right. But utilities and groceries continue to go up, become more and more expensive. Whereas Americans, a lot of which are saying that you know, they're spending way more on groceries than they were even five or ten years ago. The point here, guys, is a lot of us don't really have any idea how much money we're going to be spending on bills. There are a lot more bills than we tend to think of. Um, and when we get going, um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of recognize that and think that. Okay, next. Um, which statement is most accurate of your budgeting habits? I don't have a budget. <laughs> I think that's left over from the last one, unfortunately. I have a basic budget I look at every semester or once a year. I have a detailed budget I look at every few months. I have a detailed budget I look at monthly or more. good mix. So I may be talking to primarily those of you who are in the first two categories here in this budget section, 
But those of you who are at the bottom two, you can always learn a little bit more about budgeting, I think. Or at least kind of verify, you know, your budgeting is pretty good and, and it kind of makes sense. Okay, um, next question. Which statement is most accurate regarding your budgeting? I stay true to my budget every month. I don't pay much attention to my budget or I don't have one. I usually go over my budget significantly each month. Or I usually stay under my budget each month. Okay, so disregard what I just said. All of you who said you have a budget who don't pay attention to it, you definitely will gain something from this conversation about budgeting. Okay? Well, what's the use of having a budget if you don't pay attention to it? My goodness. Make you feel good? Uh, have you shown someone your budget with the hopes of getting their help or feedback? Let's say within the last few months, you've shown someone your budget with the hopes of getting feedback from them. Yes or no? Oh yeah, this hits right at the heart of how we think about money. It's a private thing between me and no one else. That is not a biblical idea of finances. The Bible opens up the door on finances and makes it one of the most open things we talk about. This is probably one of the areas that we've gotten most mixed up with the messages that our society sends us. People don't know about your budget, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, and don't hold you accountable to it. How could you ever expect to keep it every month or keep it every semester. How would you possibly do that? At what point did we decide that somehow with greed and with budgeting we don't need any accountability? Yes? It's interesting how like some people even consider it rude if you talk about money with them. Absolutely. And those of you who have been around me, man, I'm, I'm asking you how much money you're making. I'm asking how much you're saving. I'm, I don't want specific numbers. You know, that is not rude. And if you find it rude, then you need to get over it. Being in a community like ours, we have the responsibility to make sure that you're using your money wisely. That you're not hoarding money that you're not using money to you know, gratify your own simple desires, or a whole bunch of other things. That's community life, though, okay? All right, next one. Um, how many months of bills do you have in your savings? Mm. <laughs> no savings. Less than one month. Between one and three months. More than three months. So how many months of bills do you have in your savings? You calculate your monthly bills, and then you decide, hey... How much do I have? How many months could I survive without a job or without any work? Now, by savings, guys, I don't mean, like, stuff that's already pretty much going somewhere. Like, if you know it's going to education next semester, that's not really savings. You realize that, right? That's just an expense that hasn't been expensed yet. Everyone's like, oh. <laughs> oh. A ton of financial aid in my savings. Yeah, but that's going somewhere. I mean, that's okay, whatever. I'll trust that about half of you or so, you know, actually do have money. Okay. Um, century, okay, now we'll do this a little bit later. Don't answer this one yet, okay? I'm going to go back to this one so that you don't do that. Oh, it's locked anyway. You can't do it. Okay. Okay, budgeting. Here we go. Budgeting wisely, all right? Number one is be productive. Be productive. Productive. It takes practice to manage your money. Okay? You don't just get money and then learn automatically how to use it. You practice in every stage of life. If you weren't a good money manager in college, you're not going to be a good money manager when you get a job. 
This is an automatic learning lesson like birds learn how to fly or something. I don't know if that's true, but you don't just learn when you get them. Okay? That's too many people's philosophy on money. It's like, well, I'll learn how to budget when I have money. No, you won't. Just like you're not going to learn how to be a good giver when you have money. If you can't give when you have no money, you're not going to give when you do have money. Okay? If there's one proof of that, it's that the middle class gives less than everybody else when it comes to financial contributions. And I think we'll do that a little bit later. So, it often doesn't matter how much you have as much as how much you know about how to use what it is you do have. When it comes to budgeting, what you have is often secondary to how much you know about how to use what you have. I'm amazed, guys, amazed. People who make twice as much as me, who don't use their money near as wisely as I do, who just simply seem to have problems with money. Now, when you don't have much of it, you have to kind of learn how to use money wisely. That's why folks growing up in poverty and in the working class are often much more frugal and wise financially than a lot of folks I see growing up in middle class and upper middle class homes. Parents didn't teach them anything. Didn't have to. Wasn't a priority. And we can learn a lot from folks who grew up in homes where there wasn't a lot of money to go around because they've often learned how to maximize stuff. Uh, but you've got to be productive with your money. Jesus tells us, you know, we, we absolutely want to be smart and with the gifts that we've been given. Not squandering it, not wasting it. We need to be smart. So, number one, learn the value of things. This is kind of hard. This is one of my favorite things to do. Learning the value of things. Okay, now what do I mean by that? I mean like figure how much stuff costs. Not how much you're willing to pay for something, but how much is it actually valued with. Cars, uh, uh, whatever you're buying online. I mean, people often, it seems like, just go and they find the first thing and then immediately they pay for it without really paying attention to, okay, is there a place that I can negotiate here? Is this even worth what I'm about to spend on it? Do that a lot with cars or things that you buy uh, on Craigslist, things like that. Learn the value of things. When we talk about cars a little bit later, we'll talk about NADA, and we'll talk about Kelly Blue Book and some of the places that you can actually find the value of things. And I've included all of this, by the way, in your resources section at the very, very back, as well as a sample budget for college students. Another great place to learn the value of things is Consumer Reports. For a $5 monthly subscription, and you can just use it one month, you can learn what, number one, people are saying about reviews about stuff. I always look at reviews on products before I buy them. So if a product gets like two reviews out of five, what's the point of buying it? I want to buy a product that actually gets good reviews, and I know other people are going to say, this is a valuable thing. Okay? And Consumer Reports does that kind of stuff for you, too. Um, I often am, well, I'm obsessed with Craigslist, but... Um, I love buying stuff on Craigslist. I just love knowing that I'm buying things for ch- cheaper prices than people who are going and buying them other places. There's just something that's very pride-inducing in me. Um, and then I just have so many fun stories about selling things, but um, I can't tell you those because I think maybe I have an obsession that's not healthy to... Uh, yeah. So Craigslist, though, is a great place to look for things, look for the value, uh, to buy things, to wait on it, all that good stuff. Um, I'm not enough time to give you the examples that I was going to give you. Okay, number two. Learn how to fix stuff. <laughs> or find people who do and pay them what they deserve. Learn how to fix stuff. Or find people who do and pay them what they deserve. Okay? There are a lot of folks in our community that kind of have skills and know stuff. This is a, this is a part of community life. is learning how to do stuff. Fixing things. Reusing things. A lot of where I make my money on Craigslist is people just throw stuff away and it needed like a $1 part that you could get up on YouTube and figure out how to work on. 
People are like, how do you learn all the things you've learned? Like, I've got some amazingly mechanical mind. I got on YouTube for one minute and learned how to put it back together. It was so difficult. I don't know anyone else who has the capability that I do. You know what I mean? Just there's so many ways for you to learn how to fix stuff, reuse things, be smart, borrow things from people. People in our community, who knows how many items we have like 100 copies of that we could actually just use from each other. Plenty of you love using the things that I have, and you're welcome to use them usually. Um, but we need to be you know, good at sharing that kind of stuff, right? Um, and, uh, and learning how to fix things and paying people what they actually deserve to fix them for us. Uh, too many of us, you know, we take advantage of stuff, you know? We take advantage of people. We take advantage of their skills. We want people to do stuff for us for free without really, like, learning ourselves. You know, the old, I love the old ways that the economy was presented. Not to say that it was a better way that we have it, but I have a whole group of people in Denton that I'm kind of um, country people, I shall say, uh, that we barter for stuff. I mean, we have this whole world where, like, we keep track in our minds of who owes who what, and we just barter. They got skills, I got skills, our skills are complementary, and we barter for stuff. Meaning that, you know, I trade my skills for their skills, and it just works out, and it's great. And it saves us all a lot of money. We need to bring some of that back in to the modern day, I think. Maybe not too much of it, but we need to learn how to kind of barter. And bartering is about equal value, share for share. Some of you love using people's skills, but you don't pay them what they deserve for it. You just sort of take it for granted. Greed, entitlement, I have the right to call me and get your car fixed for free. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Did I say enough about that? Okay, good. I'm, I'm over it. Number two, you got to manage your money. So you must manage your money or it will manage you. It really will. I think one of the things that we ignore a lot in the scripture, uh, and this is just my opinion, is all the times that people don't, aren't able to follow God because of financial concerns that they have. And I see this all the time in ministry. You've made some financial commitment that has kept you out of being able to serve God in a way. Whether that's, you know, you think about the, the story of the feast where Jesus is inviting everybody to come. And three of the excuses, what are they? I bought a field, can't come. I bought a donkey, can't come. It's like, what the heck, you know? Financial stuff. I don't know how to bring that into modern day. Uh, parlay? Parlay? Par- I don't know. Um... The third one, get married, which, you know, whatever, that seems better. So he goes and brings everybody else in. The rich young ruler, example after example of people not being able to follow God because they've made poor financial decisions and allowed their money to manage their lives rather than managing their money themselves. And I feel a lot of you may be in those boats. Of Your next ten years is pretty much planned out for you because of financial decisions you've made. But you need to be careful with that. Be really careful. This is one of those things that can really check us out pretty quickly. So I say that there are bad decisions now. can really snowball into much worse decisions later. But the same is true of good decisions now. They can really open up doors for us to, uh, you know, to be self-controlled and patient. I think probably one of the most important rules in budgeting is learning how to wait to buy things. It's just as simple as that. It's not being impulsive and not being thoughtless. Just wait. And it's so much better when you actually find it, too, for, like, a good price. I've been waiting to get drills that, I'm, that are coming in tomorrow, which is so stupid, for, like, six to eight months now. I've decided in my mind, okay, it's time for me to step up the whole drill thing. 
but I just the price was like way too expensive. And finally, they dropped down a little bit. And there were some other opportunities and whatever else, blah blah blah. But I didn't just go out and spend all that money on them. They're coming to me now, and I've waited all this time, and I just can't wait till tomorrow, you know. And I get my drills, yeah. But I waited all this time, and it makes it even better. So, self-control, patience. Don't just run out and buy stuff. Um, although. I'm laughing at myself because I found a bird yesterday that had a uh, broken wing, and I was ready. I was like on Craigslist, ready to find like a birdhouse for it with like supplies and like a ladder and all this stuff. And the bird died tonight or last night. So <laughs> glad I didn't impulsively uh, buy that. So <laughs> it's not funny. It's a beautiful bird. Which does anybody know anything about birds? Because I would still try to figure out how to identify it. I couldn't identify it. Okay. Well, just because you love them doesn't mean you're going to identify them. <laughs> it's good, but <laughs> iridescent. Okay, I will. But he's dead. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, so don't be impulsive. You know, you got a new hobby. You're going to run out and go spend like five hundred dollars on like the stuff, and then you use it like two times. I, I'm buy. I'm, I'm going to buy that stuff from you at one point for like one fifth of the value, and then I'm going to drive home laughing at you that I made all this money off your poor decision. So don't do that, okay? Unless you want me to laugh at you. That's not nice. Um, so great. Make a budget and stick to it. Point three. Make a budget and stick to it. One of the things we'll talk to a little bit later on is that you've got to create a realistic budget, okay? Because if you don't create a very realistic budget, there's no way you're going to stick to it, right? It's like a health plan. I'm going to work out four hours every day for seven days. Yeah, okay, good. That's, that'll be great. One of my favorite things is, uh, I don't, you guys don't really use this much in focus anymore, but they're the ideal time pictures. You ever heard of those? Basically, you like set up your, your week on a spreadsheet, and you say yeah, your ideal schedule, this is what I would do. One year at Colin, I had this kid who was a terrible student, okay? But, I mean, he really was trying. And, like, his ideal time picture included, like, six and a half hours a day of studying, five days a week. And I'm like, okay, this is titled ideal, but I don't think, like, utopian world schedule. Let's start you off at, like, 30 minutes to an hour, considering I don't think you've ever studied ever. So, (laughs) budget's the same way. We've got to create a realistic budget when we're trying to kind of figure out, you know, uh, what we want to do. So, uh, A, budget all of your money. Got to budget all of it. Anything you don't budget, whether that's that it's going to savings, whether it's that's going to whatever, um, it won't help you. You got to budget it all, the whole thing. You don't just budget the bills part of it. You budget those fixed ones, which we'll talk about in a second, and the variable ones, the ones that change from time to time. So budget all your money. Anything that you've got income, it needs to be budgeted. So if you do some weird odd job on the side or something, don't put that money somewhere like in a you know, safe and not budget it, budget that money too. Anything that comes in, whether you tell the IRS or not, budget that money, okay? You should tell the IRS. Okay, live within your means, B. Not your parents' means. Some of you have gotten really used to living a certain lifestyle that unfortunately, when you become an adult that's not living with your parents, your parents might cut you off and you're going to have a rude awakening. So even if your parents help you, you really need to think about living within your own means and not your parents' means. Is that saying that they shouldn't pay for your college? No, my parents paid for my college. They really wanted to, my undergraduate, uh, because no one paid for them. That was a gift that they gave me. Um, you know, I'm not going to keep that from them. But when I moved out, and I had started working when I was 15 and moved out when I was about 20, 
I intentionally cut my parents off. That's weird to say that. No. I released myself from them paying for me stuff. No car insurance, nothing. I didn't want my parents to pay for me. And I would love if we had more people in our ministry who would be doing that rather than prolonging this sort of baby-style life that's living on your parents' money. We need more of you to be able to actually let your parents release you and so you can start practicing being a grown-up and paying for a lot of this stuff on your own. Uh, now's the time. One of the big transitions I think that's so hard is getting into the working world, and now you've got to, like, you just get dropped off into the working world. There's no, like, slow ramp. It's just like getting onto Highway 35 and then being, like, a one-foot or two-foot drop. It's going to be painful. There's no level, okay? Um, yeah, okay, whatever. My analogies. Thank you. Whatever. I don't care. Yeah. It's like basically just getting on I just getting on a 35. Yeah, really, at all. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, you need to start practicing that stuff. Uh, now is the time. Uh, I know that sounds really crazy because, like, we're not told to, like, get rid of money. We don't want money, like, not coming in. But that's really important, I think. Um, even if that means telling your parents, you know what, I decided I'm going to spend some of your money giving, you know, to the church. or <laughs> Okay. Or uh, other people. Start getting used to living on your own means, not your parents' means, Okay. I uh, um, once had an example. Uh, one of the intern, uh, one of the uh, other student organizations, the campus pastor told me of a crazy example of an intern they had one year that uh, wanted to apply for their internship. This young girl had ninety thousand dollars in college debt from UNT, and she wasn't even graduated yet. She was graduating uh, over the, in, in the May in May area or whatever. And I was like, well, how does she possibly have that much debt? And I only found out later that her mom is a CFO of a major Fortune five hundred company in Dallas. Uh, that means she's a chief financial officer of this organization and somehow let her daughter get away with $90,000 of the debt. Well, as I started to explore, it's because her lifestyle was unbelievably um, non-maintainable. It was the lifestyle of a 50-year-old making $70,000 a year, not of a college student making nothing a year. And so it just got out of control. Guys, we need to live within our means, okay? Uh, and that means not spending money on stuff you don't have, you don't have money to spend on. In our wonderful day of age where we have credit everywhere, an easy credit, too many of us are using credit as a crutch to go month to month in the hole. One month of debt to the next month of debt, just hoping at some point money will just come out of nowhere. <laughs> you got to get out of that. You got to stop that. Uh, if you need help, you need to be asking for it from us, not from credit card companies. And, uh, and that's a big, big, big part of this budgeting thing is living within your means, okay? If you walk away from here with all this wonderful knowledge, but you live like most Americans live, which is to say not within their means, none of this will apply to you. None of it will help you. None of it will create success for you in your own financial world. You've got to start with living in a content way. And that means paying what's necessary to pay and starting with that and enjoying it. And not expecting life to be good based on how much extra you can spend above that. But being able to be glad that you can at least just, you know, pay for bills and pay for a place to live and some of these other things. Okay, plan for the unexpected. I was going to take a break, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to kind of finish up. Sorry. Take a break if you want to. Go to the bathroom. Yeah. Plan for the unexpected. This is where a lot of people, I think, get tripped up is they've budgeted a lot of things, but they like haven't budgeted for their car to break down or for their student loan, uh, their, to make less money in their student loans the next semester. I mean, to get less student you know, financial aid next semester. 
Um, you've got to try to plan for the unexpected. This is the whole idea about living underneath your budget versus trying to live right at it. You live right at it, you don't have any room for unexpected, both unexpected giving and unexpected expenses. If you live under it, you have the ability to do that. Justin? Um, I just want to say that when the market crashed in 08, my dad like got laid off along with a lot of other people, and then he got laid off again, and I was like asking like that scared little kid. I was like, Dad, how are we going to get through this? I'm scared. We're going to be homeless. And I was just like super frightened, but because they had put money in another savings account or whatever, they we were able to get through it with like very little debt. So Yeah. And, and I didn't add that upbringing. My dad lost his job constantly because he was a contract worker, and we constantly went from two-income family to then down to one-income family, and it created just a lot of stress on our family because my parents uh, sometimes really struggled with living consistently within their means but constantly did what a lot of Americans do, live to the maximum of their means. And therefore, again, when my dad had two jobs, we were living great. And the next Christmas, it would be like, all right, one job, we have no money. And it just creates a stress, I think. And a lot of you know that kind of family. You've lived in it. Or maybe you've lived in a family that was consistently no money. <laughs> um, but we really want to learn in now how to practice living within our means. Guys, I, I love the idea, and I fully intend at some point, even though I'm in out of Tell Chelsea, to bump up our giving to 50% of our income. We're at about 25% right now, but I want us to be at 50%. I want to be able to give half of what I make every year away to other people. That's just a goal I have. I love that idea. That I don't even need but half of it. That sounds great. It's not that I'm making $150,000. It's that I'm learning how to live with the money that I have. That is such a more rewarding lifestyle than living from paycheck to paycheck. And I think what's so funny is people are living paycheck to paycheck even if they're making seventy or 90000 a year because they've completely maximized everything that they have coming in. It immediately goes out on whatever they've decided to, to spend their money on. And that is not a way I want to live. But too many Americans are living like that, and it's no good. Okay? You differentiate between fixed and variable expenses. Meaning that there are some expenses that never change. They're always coming. Every single month, time and time again. Those are your fixed expenses. Your variable expenses are the ones to watch out for. So when Christmas time comes around, gas for me and Chelsea goes down. Because we're not driving to work near as much, right? At least I'm not. But what does goes right, right up through the roof? Well, obviously Christmas gifts giving. But what else? Travel. Uh, food. We're eating all the time, everywhere, eating out. I don't even know why that is because we have less time or we have more time to cook at home, but for some reason we just eat out a whole lot more. It's the weirdest thing. But for us, that's a variable expense. Some months, food could literally be twice as much as it was the month before based on our practices and our lifestyle. Okay? So learning how to kind of figure out those variable expenses, whatever those variable expenses for you. We live at a house where in the summer our utility bill is like $780, and in the winter it's like $330. So one of the ways that I've buffered our roommates from that is we just charge the same throughout the year. So that means in the winters we have a, a surplus where we're taking money in so that we can have a savings account. And that way in the winter, I mean in the summer, the hit isn't so hard. So we're not paying like $350 in rent. In the you know summer, I mean in the winter, and then paying like four fifty in in the summer. But learning how to do that—that's a lot of where your savings can come from—is these variable expenses. Does that make sense? I'm starting to lose some of you. I'm going to lose you a lot quicker when I go into the stuff that I have next. It gets pretty technical. Sure, you hanging in with me? Yeah. All right. Fixed and variable expenses. Uh, I think a really cool thing uh, that I found is a as a um, app called Trim. Have any of you guys heard of this? Trim. Trim will look at your budget. 
and it will tell you all of the different automatic debits you have in your account. Some of us have completely forgotten what we're paying for each month. It's amazing. Trim, they also have this thing that you can see where all the Ameri- every American who's actually done this, there's an anonymous list of things that people are paying for. And like so many Americans have like a Planet Fitness membership that they completely forgot about, which is like 15 or $20 a month. Get on Trim, T-R-I-M, put your, your information, and it'll tell you from your bank account some automatic payments. Some of it's just we don't know what we're paying for. We literally have automatic payments of stuff coming out that we may have no knowledge of. The average American had three digits, so over $100 worth of stuff they were paying for that they didn't know about. Okay? That's amazing. But we do that, right? We sign up for something, and we forget to cancel it, and just kind of ongoing and whatever else. Um, So that's another way that you can kind of work on some of those variable expenses. It's an app and a website, maybe. Who knows? Just look it up. Who knows? Trim, T-R-I-M. I just read it this morning. Um, I didn't have it on my little reference sheet thing. Okay? Don't look it up now. You're going to be distracted and everything else. I mean, you know, it's fun. I know it's great. You immediately want to see it. But, okay, create a realistic budget. I already gave you that information. Look on the last page. I put it like a sample college budget there for you. I want to focus your attention on the budget real quick because I think one of the things that um, perhaps we don't do a good enough job of is doing both a monthly budget and then like a semesterly slash yearly budget, okay? Because a lot of times those variable expenses that we have each semester or year might get us, okay? So Christmas budget, Christmas gifts, things like that that we're not really prepared for, all of a sudden we realize, oh, this is the month for that, and then all of a sudden we have no money to spend on it. So that's why you have a monthly income there, and then you have a monthly expenses, and then you have a semester income and semester expenses, And then you want to look overall between whatever period you choose. I put January to May. Monthly income, monthly expenses, semester income, semester expenses. Then what's my total difference? (laughs) If you're like me in my 20s, I would just go from month to month. At the end of the month, I'd have some money. I'm like, yeah. Then I'd forget like that money is really going towards stuff in the next month. And so it wouldn't really be true savings. It would be just money that was already spoken for. Um, don't, don't do that, okay? You shouldn't be too surprised with money when it comes to your budget each month. If you're like consistently surprised about how much money you don't have or do have, you're not doing budgeting right, okay? You need to be, you know, you should know that stuff uh, pretty well. Okay, questions about the budget? All right. I'm sorry, guys. I, I know it's a lot of information. Uh, okay, so create a realistic budget. That was E, F, let someone look at your budget. I've talked about that enough. Uh, <laughs> One of my favorite things to do is when people are asking me to support them and then they're like wanting to make like way more than I make. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, look at your budget. This happens mostly with like new focus interns who expect to make like a ton of money each month. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe we should like look through this budget and try to trim it a little bit because you're making about twice as much as I make. And I don't know if you really need to be making that. Same thing goes for people who are making like a tenth of what I make. They need like $500 a month. I'm like, okay, well, no, I don't think that's going to work. So, you forgot rent. Oh, yeah, rent. That's You need a place to stay. You can't stay with me. Um, so, things like that, right? Uh, you got to have uh, someone looking at your budget. Okay? And then you want someone to keep you consistently responsible for that. It's just one person. Hey, dude, how you doing on your budget? You know? Uh, you know you have those friends that, like, one week they can eat with you because they have money, and the next week they can't because they don't have any money? You're not doing a good job of budgeting if you're one of those people, okay? <laughs> if, like, you go week to week, how much money do I have? and your whole life changes as a result of doing your budget, again, 
not good at budgeting, okay? And for those people who do that, you need to challenge them. You need to say, dude, what is wrong with your budgeting? Like, what, what's happening? Week to week, month to month, you're like, become a different person. Are you not planning ahead? What's happening here? And be able to kind of enter into people's lives there because those are some great conversations to have with people. And finances, this is just not something our society teaches. It's no wonder why a lot of us are absolutely terrible with finances. We don't learn it anywhere. Like sex education, our parents just don't really tell us much about finance, okay? Uh, so we, we've got to learn and teach each other um, about these principles and concepts. Okay? And then G is just use the tools available to, to manage your money. Ready? Cool, cool? You guys need a break or what? No. You dying? Okay. All right. Uh, developing a generous heart. Oh, oops. I've got the fourth one, huh? Uh, the fourth one is just save and pay off debt, but don't hoard. How do I know when I'm hoarding money? Well, you're going to have to just decide that, uh, ultimately. I would say, generally speaking, as a starting place, and this is just my opinion, every one of you should have some type of emergency fund between $500 and $1,500 just in your savings account. Ideally, you would have three months of bills in your savings account, meaning completely savings, nothing else can be touched by it, it's just there to do with what you need it to do. Three months of bills, yeah. That's the emergency fund or on top of an emergency fund? On top of an emergency fund. So your emergency fund is five to $1,500, and I think all of you should have at least $500 in your savings account. If you don't, you need to figure out what you're doing wrong. Okay? Five to five to fifteen hundred of just emergency, meaning if something terrible happens in my life, healthcare, car, whatever, I use that. That's not emergency fund for other people. Like they have an emergency, they need to go be a missionary for a year. <laughs> that is emergency fund for you as a safety net. I know that sounds like a lot. Five hundred dollars probably sounds like a lot to some of you. Others of you maybe not so much. But uh, most Americans today, most Americans don't have the ability to live for three months, not at their normal bills, but at the poverty line. Most Americans don't have enough savings in their account to live at the poverty line, which is only $28,000 for a family of four for three months. Just couldn't do it. That's crazy. You're in an environment where nobody saves anymore. Yes, sir. $28,000 who? Where did you get that? Uh, that's the, uh, um, who puts out, the Department of Agriculture with the Department of Labor put out a federal poverty rate every single, uh, well, it's 28 for a family of four. Okay. It's like 24 or 25 for the average typical family of just three kids. Okay? And for you as a single person, it's like 12 or 13 or something. Um, I can't ever remember the poverty line. They change every, every year, and I learn them, and then I forget them, and whatever else. So, the average American family cannot live at the poverty line for three months. That's cr- that really is crazy, okay, uh, in terms of savings, just, with, just off their savings. So, save some of May. Now, anything beyond three months of an emergency fund, I believe you ought to really consider uh, what's hoarding. I know that sounds maybe like uh, intense, But for those of you who truly have more than three months of bills saved away, um, you ought to just just figure out where you're giving at. If you're not given, you know, considerable amount when you have three months saved away, you know, you may be hoarding. And, I mean, that's just my definition of it, okay? 
uh, hoarding money. We've got to be careful about that. We've got to, as Christians, strike a line between just having a whole lot of money and feeling secure about ourselves and losing out on opportunities to really give and bless other people. Now, I'm not going to talk much about investments and all that stuff now because we don't have time. And so I'm just telling you this as a rule for you as college students. And again, I mean money that's not spoken for. If you've got 5000 in your savings and all of that's been spoken for for college, or you've got a gift from your grandma that said that's for a new car when you get out of college, um, then those things are a little bit different and kind of challenging. Questions about the hoarding one? Okay. So, developing a generous heart. Oh, goodness. Give generously, spend wisely. I'm going to move through this so quickly, guys, because I know you hear a lot about this already at our church, for those of you who are here. And I just said this is fun stuff. There are a few things in my life that I take more joy away from than giving to people. I love newsletters that I get. I love being involved in people and the ministries that they're doing. I love giving my money away to people. It is very fun. And, um, and it's not always fun. It's a challenge sometimes. It's you know, responsibility. But for the most part, it's just fun to me. I mean, it really is just fun. I get, I get tickled at the thought of being able to give to people. <laughs> I'm sorry. We oh. said tickled. Okay. All right. Yeah, that is sort of funny. Um, but I really do. It's really fun to me. And people uh, present to me a new intern opportunity or a new thing. I'm going to have like 20 of you after. Like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about doing the internship. You know, sit down with me in a row. Um, it's just great. It's so much fun and to be able to really be involved in people's lives and to be giving. And I love diversifying my portfolio. So I love giving to IJM, uh, International Justice Mission, you know, Gospel for Asia. There's a lot of different organizations all over the world and domestically that I really enjoy kind of being involved in. Chelsea just likes to give people she knows, whatever, but I have a much more global mindset. So. Okay. Honor God with your giving. Two. Give as he would. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. I love this passage. It just says uh, to honor God uh, with your wealth. What does it mean to honor God with our wealth? Well, it means to give as he gives. Which means if nobody is, if you're not responsible, wait, if no one relies on you to give to them, you're not giving as God gives. Let me say say that again. If nobody relies on the money you're giving, you are not giving as God gives. You are not honoring God with your wealth. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you're giving to one individual person and they always rely on you. It could be giving to our general account and empowering, you know, Leslie and me and Austin, some other folks to do ministry, benevolence fund, but God is a God that you can consistently rely on when it comes to giving. And if you are not someone who someone can rely on consistently to give, you are not honoring God with your wealth. Proverbs 3, 9-10, through 10, and that's a lot of other places. If God gave as you gave, how much trouble would we be in? It's a good question you can ask yourself. Yeah? Give of the first fruits of your wealth. This just simply says one of the first things that you ought to think about in your budget each month is how much you're going to give and, and where. That could be 1%. That could be $50. The goal here is not at all the percentage. The whole idea of tithing 10% is an Old Testament idea. If you guys want to go back to Old Testament times, we're going to have to change a whole lot of stuff about ourselves. Okay? So 10% is not some beautiful goal and everyone should be going for 10%. You need to decide in your own mind and in your own heart what it is you want to give and how that best honors God. But we need to give of our first fruits, meaning that we're looking at the whole picture and saying, first, I'm going to decide where to give. Then I'm going to decide the stuff with bills and things like that. Okay? 
You can think back to the Cain and Abel situation, which is really probably one of the more famous examples of this. Because most likely Cain didn't think about that. He sort of gave God what was left over, uh, and Abel did the opposite. He gave God first. Wage an all-out war on greed in its various forms, especially in regard to giving. That's five. Uh, was number four. Don't worry about it, guys. I mean, you know, who cares, really? I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, oh, crap. Okay, sorry, yeah. No, I shouldn't say crap. Uh, take that away. Take it away. <laughs> don't give money you don't have unless God has clearly called you to. Some of you are really generous with other people's money. <laughs> if you're having to get into debt to give to people, you are not a good giver. Okay? Don't do that. Yes? Unless God has what? Clearly called you to do it. Meaning that if God has just said, listen, you're giving this money, you have no choice. And you give it, man. Be careful. But don't go think you're some spiritual dude or do that. Ah, that's lame. Um, because you're giving money that you don't have. That's not your money. If you're getting into debt to give, you've done it wrong. You're not get, figure out where else you can actually cut and make sacrifices. A lot of us want to give on top of spending all the money we have. And that's just a debt mindset that really gets us into a lot of trouble. You kind of touched on this earlier, but I think something along with that as well is giving money to people Notoriously bad yep. their money. Same thing. And if, you know, oh, their car broke down and they, it's been this year, six times this year, they don't have any money because they just bought a new TV or whatever, or they're yep. constantly running out of money and you're like, oh, well, I don't know, I'm supposed to be generous. Yep. Should I help them? I think there's a level of being wise about that as well. And thanks, because that was my next point, so I'll just, you know, keep oh, going. So it's fine. Don't worry about it. This is pretty much living with us. You know, we just love fighting. It's just one of the most fun things about our relationship. Um, we're ornery people, you know. Uh, okay, so um, don't give money you don't have unless God clearly called you to. So the next one, wage out war. Uh, wage an all-out war and greed in its various forms. I'm not going to explain that. I just love that way that sounds. It's like, yeah, war against greed. Okay, six, be a responsible giver. Okay, wage an all-out war and greed in its various forms. Be a responsible giver. This is exactly what Chelsea was talking about. Part of this is not giving to people who are using you as a crutch to be bad at money. Some people are financially irresponsible because they don't have any money and they genuinely need your help and instruction. Some people are financially irresponsible because they're financially ignorant. And you giving them money is only going to make that worse. Like giving, you know, drugs to a drug addict. Okay? Someone who doesn't know how to spend money wisely isn't going to use your money any more wisely. And that's not okay. We shouldn't be doing that. Now, if we're going to err on one side or the other, I think Air Jesus tells us to err on giving people money without you know, worrying about where it's going to go. But when we know people and are close to them and know this is harming them and not helping them, that's not okay to be giving money to people. You guys, a lot of times you can talk to Delessi or I uh, or um, Emily and Josh and Matt Wills who work with our benevolence account and Kurt Doty. What? Kurt Rowe? Uh, Kurt knows nothing about money. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you can talk to Kurt if you want. Kurt's responsible. He knows how to use his money. So I would, yes, talk to him as well. Um, and let us, we, we usually know about folks in our society who are generally like uh, wanting money and wanting too much money because they come to us. And so we have a lot more um, methods that people go by for really getting money. And so if you ever have a question about any of that, come talk to Leslie, come talk to me, and we'll coach you through how to give to people who you're kind of wondering if. Because we've actually had people come through our ministry who have taken thousands of dollars from people using people's, um, you know, generosity to really exploit them. And that's just not okay, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, 
we're fine with that. We'd rather have people exploiting us than we would, you know, us exploiting people or us being stingy. But we still want to be smart about that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, anyway. Okay. Um, so I gave you some opportunities that I've already talked about there for being a responsible giver. Look at Charity Navigator or GuideStar, both great organizations for critiquing um, charitable organizations. I'm pretty serious with this kind of stuff. If someone wants me to give to a charitable organization that's not rated very highly, I'm going to look why they're not rated very highly, and then I'm going to decide whether to give. And I'm pretty strict about that stuff. If they're an organization that spends way too much money on advertisement expenses or has a CEO making a million dollars, I'm just not going to give to them. Sorry, I have no real qualms about it. Um, but you can find that information out on Charity Navigator or GuideStar. Look around at the opportunities we have, guys. Interns, Jesus Project Ministries, World Vision, uh, people who ask. We have a car fund that many of you might not know about where we try to kind of provide cars for people who don't have money to buy cars. Uh, Our benevolence account. Jesus makes it clear. If people ask you, you respond with giving it to them. Unless there's some obvious reason that's in their harm, when people ask, we give. We're giving people, and that's what we should be known for. Uh, And I think the first century Christians did a whole lot better job of this than we do, unfortunately. Um, So, anyway, ask good questions. Uh, Don't just give to give and feel good about yourselves, but to actually interact with someone, you know? I think that's the real cool thing about a lot of the type of giving that we have. And then also just spontaneous giving is important. Uh, And, you know, I always just try to keep some money aside to give to people spontaneously. I mean, Denton is a place where a lot of people are asking for money. And you can take them out to lunch or dinner and have a conversation with them and get to know them. And we've made, you know, connections in our church through doing that with people. And that's just cool, man. It's just cool to be able to do that for people. Families who need gas money. Families who, and I know a lot of times we're wondering about drugs and alcohol. And at the end of the day, there's just no satisfiable way to figure that stuff out. Uh, I remember when Garrett and I went and bought a guy a turkey and some bread and peanut butter sandwiches. Gave him a bag and then gave him $20 in cash. And literally watched him go over to the liquor store to buy liquor. It's like, okay, fine. You know, shouldn't have gave him the cash, but at the end of the day, we gave him food, and I think that's good. Um, so I think we should give freely to those people who are asking us, okay? Which means if someone's got a sign on the side of the road, they are asking you, okay? So long as you're not, like, going to cause a wreck behind you, maybe you should give them a couple dollars out of your pocket and skip lunch or eat something else uh, at home. Uh, yeah, be creative. Give time. Give skills. If you don't have any skills, get some skills, <laughs> Bow hunting skills, whatever skills you got, just get some, okay? Uh, I think that's a great way to give, really. For those of us who don't have money, to just go find a skill that we can be good at. This is Den, guys. It's like cool to be skilled now again, you know? Uh, so find a skill. Get good at something. Someone can rely on you on. Uh, that's, that's good stuff. Make sacrifices, guys. Sell things. If you truly don't have the ability to give and you've maximized your monthly budgets, it's time to sell some stuff. You need to get on Craigslist and sell some stuff to me. I'm gonna be gladly to buy. It. I'll gladly buy it for a fifth of what it, it costs. Um, <laughs> seriously though, if you don't have money to give, you got too much stuff maybe. Because very few people in you guys' situations truly don't have any money to give. What's happening is you've maximized your your the money that you have coming in, and you need about time to sell some stuff. That's the fun stuff. Getting selling things and being able to kind of give to other people is pretty pretty sweet, pretty fun. Okay. So now that we have 10 minutes, and I'm going to go over 10 minutes, so if you've got to go in 10 minutes, just go. But I'm going to try my best to do all of this in um, 10 minutes. So we'll see what happens. Okay, let's see. I mean, all of this in 20 minutes. Let's see if these are good. I don't know if this is worth it. Uh, yeah. Okay, percentage of income do you give to a charitable organization? Let's not do that. Who cares? 
Uh, average person gives less than 3%. The middle class is the least giving, the lower class is the most, upper class is the second most. The lower class gives almost, and by the way, lower class meaning anybody that makes less than $30,000 gives twice as much as a percentage of their income that the middle class does. That's telling, okay? Uh, okay, yeah, let's do this one. How much total debt do you have? Oh. All right, total debt. Pull up. That's great, guys. That's really healthy, you know? The average college student... Well, actually, I think I'm about that. Ask this question. Uh, so I should not say anything. All right, moving on. Uh, what is the average American's credit card debt amount to, and what about the average American student loan debt? 36,000. It's lost. This is my classes all the time. They always have to tell me that. Actually, I'm just going to tell you. So the average uh, credit card debt is about 7,500, which isn't even on there. Uh, and the average student loan debt now is 30000 The average college student graduates from 30000 Now, UNT's graduation uh, rate is only 21000 I mean, debt rate is $21,000. Uh, TWU's I haven't looked at, so I don't really know. Okay? Um, what percentage of Americans have debt that is in the collection process, and what is the average of that collection amount? The answer is 35% of debt that's gone to a debt collector, and the average amount is about $6,000. Okay? So a third of our society has debt that's in the collection process, meaning that it's way too far. Um, what is this? Way too far. What does that mean? It means it's gone way too far. You know, it's like gone to the last road of defense where it's about to go on your credit score oh, okay. and you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's stupid. I don't know. You know, I just added that because I'm dumb. Uh, okay. So understanding credit and debt. Here we go. Basics of credit. Principal, which is the amount of money that you're actually using to buy the thing that you're buying. Okay. That's the cost of the vehicle, of the home, of the whatever. It's a principal. Then you have an interest rate, right? And that rate on a car loan could be anything from 2% right now if you've got good credit up to, I know people paying 15 to 18% for cars because they have terrible credit, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's five to six times more money. Um, and actually, it's more than that once you compound interest. The idea of compound interest, guys, is that interest is constantly calculating again. And so, you know, it's, it's not like you say, oh, hey, well, I have a $50,000 loan, so I'm going to pay 3% interest, and I'm going to pay 3% of $50,000. No. Your effective rate is going to be more like 4% in terms of actually the amount of interest that you're paying on that loan because it's compounding. All your payments that you owe are adding frequently. Okay. If you want to know about compound interest, just type in compound interest in Google, and there's some really funny videos that you can watch about it, okay? <laughs> They're funny and informative. Okay, total interest is the next thing. A lot of people, they buy a car and they look at the interest rate and you'll see that uh, folks will, you know, um, car salesmen will want you to focus on the interest rate and the monthly payment. That is the least significant thing you could possibly be focusing on in terms of the overall amount. The monthly payment, who cares what you're paying monthly? The real question is, what's your total interest? And no one's going around saying, oh yeah, well here's the total interest you'll have on this car, you know, because it's much easier to think in terms of monthly payment. But total interest is the amount of interest you're paying to borrow the money that you're using to buy that thing, right? And, uh, and that's a pretty big deal. So I spent, you know, I have a car that was 14000 
and my interest rate is 1%, and I paid $350 to, on interest on my car. Okay? Now, that's crazy. So it happens when you get really good credit. I have a friend who bought a $10,000 car. Okay? He's paying 18% interest on his car, which amounts to like $1,800. Okay? So he's paying $1,800 for a $10,000 car. I'm paying $300 for a $14,000 car. Interest rates are not held equal. You have a decent credit score, you're going to pay a lot less in the long run. And I think our credit system is really kind of geared towards preying on people, but that's a whole other conversation. You just know that ahead of time. Okay? Loan type. Basics of credit. You know, you want to know the loan type. For those of you who are dealing with student loans, loan type means everything to you. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Loan term. How long you're actually going to have this loan for, right? And then any penalties that may be associated with paying things off early, paying too much, uh, that kind of thing. All right? So, um, you know, with credit cards, credit card interest rates are generally 13, anywhere to 30%. And that's why credit cards are generally thought of as not a really good thing to borrow money. It'd be much better for you to go to a bank and just get a loan, a personal loan, than it would be to use a credit card a lot of times because credit card interest rates are so unbelievably high meaning that they're charging you so much more. I believe that credit cards should only be used if you're able to pay them off each month. There is never a good reason in my mind to get a credit card, particularly to pay off another debt that you have, particularly if the interest rate on the credit card is worse than the interest you have on the other thing. Okay? I know a lot of you have probably been trained to use credit cards to get yourself out of immediate situations, but that is end up going to cost you a lot more in the long run. Credit cards should only be used if you can pay them off monthly. Now, when you have good credit, credit card companies will sometimes give you the opportunity to have a no-interest credit card for a year or two years. Chelsea and I have a no-interest credit card for two years, which basically means they gave us $15,000, and we don't have to pay anything back for, you know, two years. Now, did we maximize that card? No. Did we use it for some payments that we normally take over the course of those two years? Sure. But they match the amount that's in our savings account meaning that we never put on our credit card what we don't have in our savings account. I mean, I could pay it off at any time. But honestly, I can take the $2,000 that they gave me for free for two years, and I'll make money off that $2,000, either selling motorcycles or even just putting it in a CD. I mean, putting it in a normal interest-bearing account, I'm going to make more money off of that than if I were just to keep it in my account. So that's part of the reason why I did that. That's probably confusing. Okay. Just ask questions if you have questions. So... Uh, that's the power of, uh, of credit, basics of credit, I mean. Student loan types. Okay, there are only really three major student loan types uh, through the Federal Student Aid Organization. They are the subsidized and unsubsidized. Most of you know subsidized means the government's going to pay for your interest while you're in school. Unsubsidized means that the government is not paying your interest while you're in school, meaning that it's accruing interest as you go. Okay? Parent plus loans are not that great. Not only do they have a high interest rate, but they have an origination fee, which means that they're going to charge you money just for taking the loan out. Sometimes eight, nine hundred, a thousand dollars. That subsidized and unsubsidized loans do not charge you for. Okay, they also have penalties associated with them. Your parents usually have to sign with you, and a lot of other things. Okay, now all of those loans you don't have to pay back until six months after you graduate. Uh, and there's all kinds of forbearance and deferrals and things like that. But guys, one of the real problems with the student loan industry right now is a lot of us are taking out money without really understanding the value of money. 
you're taking out thirty or forty thousand dollars of loans with the with the idea in your head that you're going to get a fifty thousand dollar a year job. Well, you might not. It's probably better to think of yourself as getting a job somewhere in the twenties or thirties when you first get out of college. And so, what does that mean? That means you know, a couple years of paying off that debt, and then you add the interest on top of that. And student loan debt interest rates aren't terrible right now. They're hovering, I think, between about four and six percent if you don't have a Parent Plus loan. But that's still a lot of money. So, on my debt of sixty thousand. Just Chelsea and I's combined. Chelsea had great interest rates, three percent. Uh, Mine were high, like six percent. They were going to charge me twenty-one thousand dollars on top of the sixty thousand dollars. That's a third of the loan price. That's compound interest over ten years. Okay. Instead, we mostly paid off our loans and paid less than three thousand in interest. So I went from twenty-one thousand to three thousand. That's a lot better deal because I paid huge chunks of it over the course of two or three years, which is way better. You always want to pay off loans at the beginning of the loan, not at the end. Because most of the loan payments are at the beginning. I mean, your interest payments are at the beginning. I can draw this up for you, but I don't have anything to draw. Uh, If you think about it, okay, yes, no, right, yes. I'll try my best to do this for you. It might be super confusing. Some of you in my culture class already got this randomly. Um, But uh, let me try to... (laughs) Super fail. Um, okay, thank you. So, yes, interest principle. Uh, this is going to mean nothing to you. Okay. Yay! So, you see this is like a little box thing, right? And you have interest on the top and principle on the bottom. At any given time... Okay, so this is day zero. This is day, I put 3,000 years because I'm doing my religion example. Hopefully you won't have a loan for 3,000 years. Um, Five-year loan, okay? This is how it's going to work at any given time. So if you take a snapshot within your first year of that loan, half of your payment is interest, half of its principal. The best time to pay off a loan is at the beginning of the loan, (laughs) not at the end. At the end of the loan, you're paying off just principal. That doesn't mean anything. But it's the interest. In fact, a lot of loans, they, re- they get almost half of their interest within the first year or two years. Why is that? Because if you default on a loan, you're more likely to default at the end of the loan when they've already gotten their interest. And you're defaulting on the principal balance. This is what happens when people get in over their heads, when they have way too much interest on a loan and all they're doing is paying off interest payments. Your student loans are the exact same way, y'all. Okay? The earlier you pay them off, the less you're going to pay in the long run. And the better, the better thing in the whole thing is just not take loans at all that are too high and above what you need to pay. But I, alas, I know a lot of us have loans, and I'm here to tell you I had a lot of loans from lots of grad school, and it's possible to work yourself out of it. Questions about that? Can you very briefly, if it's not possible, don't do it, but explain how they're supposed to go about paying back their loans? Like, who do they contact? How do they find out what their total debt is? Right. Yeah, it's pretty complicated, actually, because... Um, you can, you can get a consolidated loan where all of the debt gets kind of put into one servicer, which is the Department of Education, but sometimes you don't have options for that. So if you've got seven or eight different loans, you have an option to consolidate that debt, which is usually a really good idea, which means that someone will buy all of it, and you can just use one source to pay off your debt, okay? But if not, you'll have to go to each individual you know, place where you got the loan from and pay it off there. And usually, if it's a subsidized or unsubsidized loan, you can have the ability to pay that off with no penalties for paying early or anything like that. But if you have a bank loan or a um, Parent Plus loan, there are penalties for paying back a certain amount. They don't really want you to pay back 
the money early on, right? Because they want their guaranteed interest. So it's, it's always good to have a loan that doesn't you know, uh, have penalties for paying off interest early. We're late, aren't we? Yeah. I'm going to be 10 minutes over. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Fine, I know. I know. I will. I'm so sorry. We owe you. We owe you big time. Okay. Uh, yeah. Question, Cody. I was just going to ask, once the loan is consolidated, who determines the interest rate? The interest rate stays. Interest rate can't stay. They can't change because they're fixed interest rates. So That's the other thing about a loan is you don't really like, you don't really want variable interest rate loans where people can up the loan rate. You want a fixed rate so that it stays the same over time. So if there's seven different loans with varying interest rates in between those seven different loans, what's the interest rate once it's consolidated? It's not consolidated into one loan. It's consolidated into one place. Does that make sense? You still have your seven or eight loans that are all collecting their their, their, their uh, various interest rates. It's just one servicer is servicing all those loans. Okay. We'll go into more of the student loan stuff when we do the, uh, the work uh, stuff, okay? I think that'll help out. Okay, so figure out student loan types and compound interest. A is figure out what type of loan you have and are planned to get. It's not okay to be ignorant here, all right? You really not, uh, need to not be ignorant of your what kind of loan you have, okay? You need to know that ahead of time before you even graduate. Uh, three is because you can start saving up money even now to make sure to offset the cost of that sub, uh, unsubsidized loan. So if you have an unsubsidized loan, man, it's, it's collecting interest as we speak. And you need to know that. You need to know how much. And that's the loan you should start paying off first. The way that you generally think about paying loans off is you pay the highest interest rate loan first. But in the case of subsidized and unsubsidized, while you're in college, if you're going to pay back any loans, who cares about the rate? You need to pay back unsub loans first and then subsidized loans. Because right now, you've got government's paying for your, for your interest rate. But generally speaking, when you have loans, you pay the highest interest rate back. So my brother, who I'm going to make fun of because I make fun of him all the time, decided to pay cash for a car rather than paying back his $12,000 student loan. Well, it sounded like a really good idea. The problem is the car loan he could have got would only have been about 2% interest. Student loan he has is 6% interest. He should have paid off the student loan, not the car. You pay off the higher interest rates. as simple as that. That's why credit card debt should always be the first thing you pay off. It's because generally those, the higher, that, that higher interest rate is going to get you a lot more than, uh, than anything that you could, uh, you could do. Okay, so three, use credit cards cautiously and build credit early on. It's okay, guys, to get a credit card now. You're in college. In fact, it's, it's good. You need to get a credit card. You need to just cut $100 a month or something on it. Just make sure you have cash to pay it off, and you're willing to do that each month. For those of you who graduate college and you have no credit cards and no credit history, you're going to have to sign, co-sign with everybody for everything. You're not going to be able to get a car. You're not going to be able to get a place. Uh, a lot of times, you're going to have to co-sign with people. And uh, I do a lot of co-signing with people, and that's fine. You know, it's a risk, but um, get a credit card. Start building some credit. Just the two or $300 a month is great. Ask your parents if when they buy you a car, they'll put your name in the, the loan, too, with it. So that they can actually you know, extend their credit to you. Unless they have bad credit, then you don't want your name in that loan, okay? <laughs> so check that out, first of all. You can look at Experian, Equifax, or TransUnion to get a free credit report from all three of those once a year. Every single one of you. So once a quarter or so... Get a free credit report. You get one free every year from each one of those three credit reporting agencies. And just make sure that there's nothing on it that's wrong or incorrect. Now, they won't give you a score, but they'll give you your report so that you can look through uh, all of it. You want your score, you're going to have to pay for it. Okay? Five or ten bucks, not a lot. Okay, car loans and the power of your credit score. Uh, score, score. <laughs> Almost everything is negotiable is my, uh, my, still, my statement there, particularly when it comes to car loans. I mean, everything. Uh, car loans and the power of your credit score, almost everything is negotiable. 
Actually, everything is negotiable everywhere. I am in the habit of trying to find products at stores that, and this is just, I'm being cheap, I think, but that look like used or broken. And I go up to them and I say, hey, can, can you give me a discount on this? They're like, yeah, 10 or 20%. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And, uh, you know, it's not like I'm doing that. I'm not, you, don't, you don't see me in the back, like, throwing cans on the ground, okay? Um, but I will find products that look like they've been used, and I'll just ask if I can get a discount. Worst they can say is no, but I've just saved 10 or 20 or maybe even 30% on a product that's slightly used. No big deal. Okay, and I always look online to compare prices for stuff. Uh, but anyway, um, write down gap insurance. They are in four. I'm not going to explain it because I don't have time, but gap insurance for car loans. That's something you want to look into. Uh, the real quick idea is that it's going to pay the difference if you're uh, in a wreck. Okay? Good debt versus bad debt. And uh, oh, I have two fives here. Oops. Uh, bad debt is generally credit card debt. I-, I think car debt, as long as it's low interest rate, is good debt. It's fine. I'm not that big of a fan of paying off cars. I don't know why people are so interested in that. Um, someone else might be, but if I'm getting 1% interest on my loan, I'm going to make 2 or 3% by just doing pretty much anything with my money. So um, there's no reason to pay off a car loan if the car loan is really a low interest. Okay? Unless it's like a huge loan. Uh, smart deals versus scams. Oh, my gosh. I am obsessed with credit card points, and, uh, that, but that's a tricky, a tricky road to go down. Because if you're not careful, you can be putting everything on a credit card and then lose track of it. But Chelsea and I, every trip that we've taken, and we've taken a lot of trips in the last two years. We've done New York, San Francisco, Chicago, D.C., San Diego, all credit card points. We literally didn't pay for our flights for these trips. My credit card company paid for it for us. It's just a really wonderful thing. (laughs) So credit cards are great if you can get a points credit card and you can manage it but it requires managing it and basically you just get a percentage of things that you pay they pay you back in points uh i made over fifteen hundred dollars in points last year uh off my credit cards i mean literally it's just fifteen hundred dollars that the credit card company gave me that's not a scam that's savings a scam is like you call up a person and they say oh come to this meeting and you're going to get like a timeshare or like a cruise yeah i'll talk to austin austin's really good at learning about scams so uh yeah he'll help you he'll help you (laughs) although i will tell you some things uh, so it says if it is too good to be true it is but every now and again stuff is true we have a really funny story about emily uh who called a radio station and won a cruise and she was like oh no that can't be right but she actually won a cruise and turned it down so oh yeah whatever we don't have time we we seriously have like one minute okay dealing with bad credit i'm not going to talk about it because we don't have any time uh insurance uh, okay, we have two minutes. Great. Plenty of time to talk about insurance. <laughs> Step one, renter's insurance. That can be super helpful. If you lose stuff, stuff gets stolen, whatever, everyone should have renter's insurance. It's like $10 a month, and it's a big savings if you ever have problems. Your house burns down, you know, anything. <laughs> okay, uh, so types of insurance. Car insurance, you've got liability, which is mandated in the state of Texas. Everyone has to have liability insurance, Okay. However, all of these other types of loans are not mandated. Collision, where if you get in a wreck, uh, they'll pay for it even if it's your fault. Comprehensive, which is like theft and damage. Personal injury, if you have people in your car that are hurt. And then uninsured, if, you hit, if someone hits you who doesn't have insurance. Those are all optional. However, if you, if, you, if you get a car loan, they're all mandatory. So that's the other thing, two difference between paying for a car cash. So liability, collision, comprehensive, personal injury, uninsured. Okay. I seriously have one minute, so I'm moving through this so fast. It always happens like this. Okay, uh, basics of car insurance. You have a deductible, which means this is how much you're going to pay before anybody is going to pay in addition to it. So if you have a $1,000 deductible, that means no matter what kind of wreck you have, you're going to pay $1,000 for it if it's more than $1,000. 
Same thing with health insurance. Deductible means you pay this amount first and then they pay after that. Limits, how much they're going to pay out of pocket. If you get in a collision and your limit's $25,000, they're not paying any more than $25,000. Okay? Premium, how much you pay monthly. Some of this is based on your driver profile, if you're male or female, if you're older or younger, driver history, if you've gotten in wrecks. Sometimes insurance is based on car type, but there's a lot said about that that's not really true, like red cars and things like that. Uh, location, though, where you live. You live in Denton where more cars are stolen, your insurance is going to be higher. <laughs> uh, so that's just how it happens. And then claims, of course, you can make claims and things like that. Um, and you should always, you know, if you get in a wreck, guys, you should always take a picture of both your car and their car and immediately call a police officer. Now, unless it's your fault. If it's your fault, you probably don't want to call a police officer because they're going to give you a ticket. Um, but if the other person calls a police officer, then what are you going to do? Nothing about it. But if it's the other person's fault, always call a police officer so they get a ticket. No, just kidding. So that they can verify, you know, who's at fault. Um, also, get a picture of their insurance when they're... Yeah, picture of their insurance, their license, anything they'll give you. Basics of health insurance, deductible, limits, premium, same thing. Type. We'll get into that later on because there's EPOs and HMOs and PPOs and everything else and everything else. Okay. Uh, coinsurance is how much you pay in terms of percentage. You've heard probably of the gold plan, silver plan. Gold plans are 80-20. Silver plans are 70-30. Or maybe gold plans are 90-10. I can't remember. That just means you pay 10%. They pay 90% of health insurance. That kind of thing. Those, that's what coinsurance means. Co meaning two people paying insurance. You got co-pays. It's how much money you're going to pay at the um, doctor's office if you go see a specialist. Uh, and co-pays are in spite of your deductible. So even if you have a $500 deductible, you don't have to pay $500, you just pay $50 to see a specialist. You don't have time for that. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.